0: Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. And as such, we hope that this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the church
1: toward a more articulate and orthodox expression. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. I'm AJ with co host Jay. Jay, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Thank you for asking, AJ. As we get started, I just want to remind everybody uh, first of all, thank you for those who've given us five star ratings. Please, if you have not done so, uh, five star ratings are h- super helpful for a podcast. Rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever other podcast service you're using. Jay tells me that we have podcast listeners in the United States, UK, Canada. Brazil, the Netherlands, Australia, uh, and possibly a couple of other places. Uh, So Scotland, Northern Ireland, I think we're we're some of those as well. So we want to thank you all for listening. uh, And we really do appreciate uh, the interest that you've shown in our podcast. So thanks for that. As we get started today, Jay, will you open us in a word of prayer? Absolutely. AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit.
0: O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
1: All right, so those of you who have been following along with us thus far are probably familiar by now with the fact that we are going through the ACNA Catechism to be a Christian. Uh, This is, by the way, I don't know if by the time this has been released, the newer uh, expanded version will be out yet, but we're not quite using that now, although we may have to do a catch-up episode toward the end on any of the new questions uh, that are discussed. We're in uh, kind of an interesting spot right now. So last week, if you'll remember, we covered the end of the Apostles' Creed, and we skipped over a number of questions that talk about the sacraments, because Jay and I both thought this was an episode that was important enough, or a topic that was important enough, that we should do a separate episode solely devoted to the sacraments. For those of our listeners who are from more outside the Anglican tradition, this is where you're going to start running into some stuff that is a little bit unusual, I suspect, uh, depending on which perspective you're coming from. You're going to find that is this is either very familiar um, or familiar but slightly different, uh, slightly off from some of the things that you have, have known and, and heard in the past. Uh, so we're going to get into some aspects of Anglican distinctives today. And because of that, we wanted it to, do, to be a separate episode. When I say Anglican distinctives, I don't necessarily mean that Anglicans have a unique teaching on this vis-à-vis the Church uh, historically or the Undivided Church, but that this is something that separates us out from other uh, communions and and different church traditions. This word sacraments can sometimes sound a little bit intimidating. Uh, it can sound like you're you're sounding very Roman Catholic, frankly. Uh, so Jay, you want to kick us off by saying what, describing what is a sacrament? And what uh, why do we use this term? and is it actually biblical to say the word sacrament?
0: Thanks, AJ. If you have a catechism in front of you, we're going to be starting actually at question 102, which asks the question that AJ just asked, what is a sacrament? Um, so this question is taken directly out of the 1662 catech- Catechism of the Book of Common Prayer and says a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means whereby we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we have in fact received it. So AJ asked the question, is it biblical to say the word sacrament? Um, I don't know if you're much of a Bible nerd, but if you flip through your book, you might find the word sacred, um, but you probably won't find the word sacrament in the New Testament if you're reading in English. The problem is, is that as we're having this conversation in English, I would assume that people listening to this podcast speak English because you're listening to us. Um, the word sacrament's not found in your English New, New Testament. What word is found over and again is the mysteries of God. Now, sacrament literally just means mystery. Um, actually, if we go to a—and um, I find this actually very useful. If you go to a Greek Orthodox— church when they talk about the sacraments the word they are literally using is the mysteries um, and we'll see this later when we get to um when we talk to ordi- about ordained ministry but you know we struggle sometimes as english-speaking christians to understand the words that we're using based on their new testament context because we use antiquated words whereas new testament translation keeps up with modernity and so the word sacrament is the latin word for mystery and we just kept it we stuck with it and we ran with it even though our english translations have moved far past us so is it biblical to talk about sacrament well the question is is it biblical to talk about that god gives us grace and manifest it through through physical things absolutely yeah um you don't need to look any further than the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. What does God do to heal Naaman of leprosy? He commands him to physically wash seven times in the gross and disgusting muddy Jordan River. You know, that is very physical and is very real and it healed Naaman. That is sacramental. And so when we talk about sacrament, that's the perspective that we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because you start getting some folks who are critical of this idea of sacraments. They say, well, you know, how can God communicate spiritual grace through a physical reality? Um, and I just kind of stop. And this was something that really was a gut check for me. I grew up in the Lutheran church, and um, I always kind of struggled with the idea of what, what was communion, like what was the impact of it? Um, and I can remember being in high school and just – crying because I I didn't see any reality to it. I didn't see how it affected my faith at all Um, because it wasn't this sort of feeling that you get from, you know, the emotional highs and so forth of, um, you know, other, other forms of spiritual expression. I think what I realized and what really struck me about this was, was that the incarnation itself is a physical reality whereby grace is communicated to us right? So if we're going to deny that physical reality can communicate the, the grace of God, uh, we have a problem with our theology of the Incarnation. And so once I realized that, that the sacraments are just an, another physical means whereby divine grace is communicated to us in the same way that Christ is that physical, um, that physical means. And then you start reading through the Bible and you see it everywhere. You see it in a burning bush, uh, you see it in a pillar of fire, um, you see it in the the Jordan River that uh, Jay was talking about. Um, you see it in a, a snake that turns or a, a stick that turns into a uh, snake of bronze that people have to touch to be healed. There's this physicality is everywhere in the Bible, and the physicality as a means of communicating grace. You see it in mud and spit that are rubbed into the eyes of a blind man uh, so that he can be healed of his blindness, Uh, or uh, or the touch on a cloak by a woman who touches the cloak of Jesus and is healed from that. And so once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it, that there is this connection between the physical and the spiritual, and that spiritual grace is communicated physically. So what I thought we, are actually, I'm going to not claim this because this was Jay's idea to try to keep us from getting totally bogged down in this, um, is that we would focus on the sacraments and look at what is the physical sign, what type of spiritual grace uh, is communicated, uh, and how how the sacrament relates to the life of faith. Um, So in the catechism, Jay, are there distinctions between the sacraments and also how many of them are there?
0: Absolutely. There are two sacraments of the gospel and then there are five other commonly referred to as sacraments we talked about how a sacrament is an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace and the other five that we're going to talk about the catechism clearly says are means by which we know that god has given us his grace um so all seven are sacraments um but there are two that are set above the rest And the primary reason is because they are universal and they are salvific. Um, So the catechism, this is question 104 says the two sacraments ordained by Christ, which are generally necessary for our salvation, are baptism and the Lord's supper. Now when it says generally necessary, this means that for the average 99.9% of the Christian community, this is required for salvation. Now, Somebody somewhere will always make the argument, well, what about the thief on the cross? He never received the Eucharist or baptism. Now, granted, there are some uh, allegorical scholars that will explain to you how they did, but the point here is not that he did or did not receive baptism or the Eucharist, but rather he was in an exceptional circumstance mm-hmm. that most of us will never find ourselves in, where we come to faith moments before our death for the average christian the 99.9 percent who live life in the church in the body and the bride of christ this is where we come to receive both both to receive salvation and to receive the gifts and assurances of our salvation
1: i think that point about assurance is really important when we're talking about salvation outside of the sacraments are we saying that that's impossible no certainly not um, I would say that, that is, salvation ultimately belongs to God. Um, but what, we, what can we say? We can say that in the sacraments, we have assurance of salvation. Um, there's this common debate that if you've been to a Christian college or around a lot of Christians, you've heard about the debate about eternal security. You know, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Um, I would say that as Anglicans, we believe in an eternal assurance that comes through the sacraments. That through the sacraments, we have an assurance of salvation. And it doesn't depend on us having the right feelings or the right thoughts or anything like that. It simply depends on us receiving Christ, right? So the sacraments give us that assurance of salvation. They also communicate the grace of it. It actually effectively does something. Um, But we know, we know, we have faith, faith, which Paul describes as belief in the things hoped for. And we have that, in a sense, through the sacraments.
0: And so with that, we're gonna go. You know, Ajay kind of mentioned it. We're gonna do sort of like a lightning round on the sacraments. Um, and if there's one particular sacrament that you want us to come back to, um, we can do that in maybe a separate episode. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about uh, the physical sign, where we see this commanded in scripture, and the grace that we receive through it. Once we've covered those three topics. We're going to move on. So, AJ, let's start with baptism. What is the outward invisible sign of baptism?
1: The outward invisible sign of baptism is water. Um, and let me say real quick before we get into the specifics here, a word about how water is used in, in Scripture. Water is a barrier. Um, and oftentimes it is a very dangerous barrier. So water is something usually to be overcome uh, or to be, to be brought through. Um, so, you know, we, you have the flood in Noah, um, God is swallowing up the world with water. You have the parting of the Red Sea, um, God is bringing his people safely through water and across away from, from Egypt, uh, and that water barrier is transcended by God's grace. Um, you have uh, the prophet Elijah and Elisha, when Elisha when, when Elijah is ascended. Um, he crosses and parts the Jordan. And, and the fact that he's able to part the Jordan and have a dominion over water, uh, but first of all, he's coming out of Israel with that. And second of all, it shows his prophethood and the fact that Elisha is able to do the same thing coming back uh, shows that he's received that prophethood from Elijah, right? So there's this sense in which water is a barrier um, that, that separates, but also going through water um, and we can transcend that barrier. And so baptism... I would say is is water is the symbol, uh, is the sign. So I don't want to say symbol because I think there's a difference between symbol and sign. A sign is efficacious. It's, it's a symbol. It does something. Um, and water is uh, some is representative and and brings us into that reality of uh, transcending the barrier between the death our our death and sin uh, and the everlasting uh, life that we have in Christ. And I think that kind of ties into where do we see warrant for baptism in Scripture.
0: So where do we see warrant, but rather we are commanded to baptize?
1: Yes. Um, I forgot to pull this
0: verse up, but I think it's Matthew
1: 25. Yeah. So Matthew, yeah. so in Matthew twenty-eight, twenty, we have, uh, are you talking about the, the Great Commission? Yes. Yeah. So it says, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to make disciples of all nations, we begin with baptism. Uh, there are also a couple of, of relevant passages uh, in, in Romans. Paul says that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, and Paul also talks in, I think it's Colossians and, and possibly in Galatians about being baptized into the death of Christ uh, and raised in him. right? So there's this clear biblical warrant for the idea of baptism um, makes one a disciple. Uh, and it also, in some sense, brings one into Christ. To be baptized into Christ uh, is to receive the benefits of his crucifixion and of his resurrection. We, we die to the old self in baptism, we are raised to the new self in Christ uh, in baptism. And so water, again, this idea of water as a barrier, acts as the, the visible sign that communicates that inward and spiritual grace. Um, and it's a sign that, again, we see very much attested in both the Old and New Testaments for what water is and what water does
0: absolutely and so you know we with scriptural warrant, i don't think we need to go any further even than just acts you know repeatedly throughout the book of acts when new people become christians the first act they take is to be baptized um and so that leads us into what is the inward and spiritual grace that is set forth in baptism and that is our new birth our new life um you know, the word uh, that is used in theological parlance is um, regenerate. We are made regenerate unto life, um, which really just means we have new life in Christ. Um, but initially, we are born as sinners. We are separated from God. But through the washing of the waters of baptism, we are made God's child by grace through faith in Christ. So that's question 106. AJ, what is the physical sign
1: in the Lord's Supper? Excellent. So the physical sign here would be the bread and the wine. Um, I want to tie this to a couple of uh, examples in Scripture. Uh, One is in the Sabbath. um, And in the Sabbath meal, there is a cup of wine and bread that goes along with the meal. And there's a, a Jewish prayer that goes with that. It says, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, and blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Uh, these are probably some of the, are, are probably integrated in some of the early Christian Eucharistic prayers as well. Um, there's a common argument people make that this, the communion early on is just a, a meal. Um, I don't think you can say the words just a meal if you're familiar with how Judaism works, because the altar, in a sense, is, or the table, in a sense, is an altar, uh, the altar of the family in Judaism. Um, and so when we see Christ then at the Last Supper, having, having this supper and having, sharing this bread with the disciples and sharing this cup of wine with them, he explains to them what's about to happen. Uh, and he recasts this Sabbath, this meal, the, this, this sacred element, um, which by the way, the Sabbath meal is always served on a Friday. Friday is the day of human creation. Friday is the day of Christ's crucifixion. Right, um, and so he's he's telling them, look, this meal that we were about to complete for him, it's the Passover, but this this central element of bread and wine, uh, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, and Jesus sort of says, says that explicitly and ties that to himself because he is about to be um, the sacrifice that's that's poured out for them, um, and so we'll get into some of the scriptural scriptural commands in a second and, and talk about I'm assuming. Uh, you've got queued up john six and if not i can i can touch on it but um the bread and the wine right this this core element of the jewish sabbath and passover meal becomes for christians uh the physical sign of the lord's supper or communion or the eucharist
0: perfect so that is the outward invisible sign and now there is you know i i'll say personally i would consider myself more on the uh Catholic side of any Anglican divide, whether it's between Catholics and Reformed or whatnot. Um, And there's a lot of pushbacks in my fellow Catholic camp about what is meant in the 39 articles when it says that transubstantiation overthrows the nature of a sacrament. And this, to me, was actually very convincing in why I decided not to be Roman Catholic. And ironically, so transubstantiation is the dogmatized Roman Catholic belief that at the consecratory prayer that the priest says that the bread and the wine completely and utterly cease to exist and are now the 100% completely and utterly the body and blood of Christ apart from bread and wine and what I would push back and what our reformers would push back is that for us to truly be sacramental we need to have a physical sign and that physical sign is the bread and wine. You know, as St. Paul says, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. You know, so what the Thirty-Nine Articles are, are pushing against is not that Christ is present physically in the sacrament, but rather that to deny the existence of bread and wine is to deny the very nature of a sacrament itself. And so, therefore, transubstantiation is not even sacramental. It's rather, in a lot of ways, Gnostic, in that it pushes against the combining of physical and spiritual realities in one.
1: Um, Yeah, um, so a couple quick points on that. One, I would say that uh, a lot of people have also cited, there's a a passage in the same article, um, I want to say it's Article 28, that says that, uh, the sacrament is received uh, given, taken, and eaten only in a heavenly and spiritual manner. Uh, and so a lot of people said this excludes any concept of physical presence. Um, what was in, important for me, and I actually got to read a quote by Bishop Edmund Guest, who is a bishop of Rochester, who wrote this article, who explicitly said that that's not what he meant, uh, that in fact, what he's pushing against is exactly the idea Jay just described. Um, and he even says that there are, some acts, uh, there are some advocates of transubstantiation who should be able to um, to push against or do, to agree with him on this point. Um, and so if you, uh, I think we, we can posted that quote from Bishop Guest in the show notes. I actually got it from a Eucharistic the- uh, sort of theologian philosopher named Brian Douglas who's done case studies on this, and his Anglican Eucharistic Theology website is a treasure trove of really, really profoundly nerdy um, discussion of Eucharistic Theology. Um, I would also say, to be a little bit fair to our, our Roman Catholic friends, there are some more modern uh, Roman Catholic theologians who have actually, I would say, argued for um, if have rephrased transubstantiation in a way that is maybe a little bit less um annihilationist uh and so i would even say some of pope benedict the 16th language is a little bit uh more i think could be charitably constructed in a less I- annihilationist um you know, way in saying that the bread and wine are annihilated but uh it is you know sort of on the books and, and that is a point of dis- certainly of disagreement between uh anglicanism and roman catholicism all right and so we want to talk about scriptural backing now
0: The clear scriptural backing for why this is a sacrament of the gospel is that at Christ's Last Supper, he says, do this as often as you meet together in remembrance of me. You know, this command, do this, is, you know, that's why, you know, in some non-sacramental traditions, they will call these ordinances, in essence, the orders of Christ. Uh, we are ordered. We are commanded. It is salvific. Now, I don't think most people listening are going to be questioning: Should we practice communion? Now, we can have debates about how often. Personally, I would say at a minimum weekly, and ideally more, more. <laughs> um, but we won't get into that. I think what we the what's controversial about this is the question. Are we partaking truly in the body and blood of Christ? And, uh, you know, we could do 18 hours of episodes on this, and you probably would not all agree with us. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read about five verses of the Bible and then one quote, and I think we're going to move on from there because we could, you know, we could end up in an 18-hour podcast really quickly. So we're coming from John 6, and this is uh, chapter 53 Uh, This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. So we're very intricately connected to bread and wine. You know, even earlier in the passage so on verse 34, the crowds around Christ, well, Christ says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people said, sir, always give us this bread. And Christ replies, I am the bread of life. And then further down the passage, Christ says, very truly I tell you, so this is starting at verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is is real drink whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him just as the father sent me and I live because of the father so the one who feeds on me will live because of me this is the bread that came down from heaven whoever feeds on this bread will live forever and now you might say and this was you know I think most people's response well Christ clearly is speaking completely and utterly figuratively and allegorically here but and so you would think that if he was people would say hey man Jesus that's a hard saying I can't accept that Are you telling me I have to eat you? Well, it's interesting that you say that because in verse 60, it says, on hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And it goes on to say that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, I want to stop there and say, if this was merely a misunderstanding, would Jesus, the one who cares so much for the one who goes astray that he leaves the 99 to find it, would he not have gone to find them and said, no, 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 I'm sorry. You misunderstood me. Instead, what he says is he turns to the rest of his disciples and said, Do you want to leave me as well? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Now, there's a lot of debates on how the Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Christ, to what extent, when that happens. We're not going to go into that here, but, but we really want you as a listener to know this is not just biblical, but it is clearly articulated in the scriptures. It is. That at the Eucharist, we are partaking in the flesh and blood
1: of Christ, period. And Paul is explicit about that in, in 1 Corinthians. So it's not just in one of the gospels, or if you wanna be a historical critical scholar, one of the gospel traditions. Uh, you know, it's in, the, it's in John, it's in Paul, uh, it's in the other, the other gospels in terms of the Last Supper. It's everywhere. Uh, And, you know, the other point that I'll say just from a historical perspective is one of the earliest things that is critiqued about Christianity is that early pagans are calling Christians, you know, they're accusing Christians of cannibalism. They wouldn't be, if if the Christians are being accused of cannibalism, you know, all they have to say is, look, this is just a metaphor, right? And they get out of the charge. But nobody makes, nobody makes that move uh, in the early church when they're, when they're being called cannibals because of their doctrine of, of the presence of christ in this so um you know how that happens i think is is a matter for uh to quote an anglican bishop uh named william laud that is a matter for the schools it's a matter for scholastic theological debate uh, but that it happens i think is a matter um, of long established biblically based church doctrine all right Lightning round.
0: the other five sacraments all right so the first one we're going to go to is confirmation AJ, what is the physical sign of confirmation?
1: Physical sign of confirmation is the laying on of hands. Um, and we see lots of passing on of, of a legacy, uh, passing on of something that has been given through laying on of hands in Scripture. Uh, and it is, um, you know, we, we see many types of this in the Old Testament and also explicit warrant for it in the New Testament. So the, and the laying on of hands uh, by an ordained uh, priest, uh, bishop, bishop, um, specifically by a uh, a bishop, actually for for confirmation, um, is passing on uh, something and laying out the hands as a physical sign.
0: Absolutely. Now, what is the scriptural basis for this? I actually, we just had confirmations at AJ and I's church two Sundays ago, and I was asked this, what on earth are we doing? Where on earth in the Bible are we told to do this? So I just wanna read really quickly, Acts chapter eight. Um, So right before this in Acts chapter seven, we see the commissioning of the first seven deacons. Now, if you wait 10 minutes, we'll talk about the difference between yeah, deacons, that priests, and bishops, and apostles. <laughs> but there's a deacon, his name is Philip, and he goes to Samaria. And when he goes to Samaria, he preaches the gospel, proclaims the word of God, and makes a thousand converts, and he baptizes all of them. And then he goes back to Jerusalem, and he says, I have proclaimed the gospel to the Samarians. And do you know what the apostles say? They say, that's wonderful. Let's go. And so the apostles go down. They don't rebuke Philip. They don't say you were lacking in what you did, Philip. Rather, they recognize and they go down to the believers in Samaria. And they the apostles lay their hands on them because it says when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because they had simply been baptized. So Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So we believe that in order to come to the waters of baptism, you need to have a work of the Holy Spirit on you in the first place to bring you to that point. So it's not that the Holy Spirit does not yet indwell in them, but rather that there is a special power that comes from the laying out of hands of the apostles. This is to such an extent biblically that a magician in the town, in the area of Samaria, comes up and says, it says, uh, specifically, if I can find the right verse. Well, um, oh, where is this verse? When Simon the magician, this is verse 18, saw that the spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offers the apostles money so that he can have that same power. Uh, so you wanna ask, where's the biblical warrant of confirmation a special gifting of the Holy Spirit from the laying on of hands of the apostles and their successors. Acts chapter 8. Read it for
1: yourself. Uh, So I think that covers, too, what the grace is. Um, Well, I I do want to say one thing. Why? And really ask a question that you can kind of expand on. Um, We said that there are two sacraments of salvation, but you're talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. So you know, a lot of people today say that without that baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're not really saved. And, of course, this is usually associated with a specific visible manifestation of that in something like speaking in tongues. So why is confirmation something that we don't consider a sacrament of salvation? So we don't consider it a sacrament of
0: salvation because clearly throughout, salvation is what we see as saves. Uh, in, I think it's Second Peter, um, Peter even says, you have been saved or by your baptism, you have been saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So this is a universal. Confirmation is a special gifting of the Holy Spirit, which all Christians should come to receive. But it's not salvific. But I would say in order to further the ministry of the church, it is necessary
1: for yeah, all people. I think that's a key point. So the confirmation is you're receiving a special grace of the Holy Spirit, which will then build you up and equip you uh, to, to build up and strengthen and do the work of the church as a layperson, um, and so there's there's a sense in which you're receiving. Um, essentially, a gift of the Holy Spirit to go out into ministry, to go out and, and proclaim, uh, to proclaim the gospel to the world. Um, you know, for, you know P- Peter talks about first Peter talks about how we're a royal priesthood and that priesthood is to the world. Um, and so confirmation in a sense is uh, anointing you and, and equipping you to do that, to go out and proclaim uh, and to fulfill the great commission uh, and also to do the work of building up the church uh, and God's kingdom. All right. The
0: next one is ordination. A.J., what is the physical sign of ordination? Laying out of hands. <laughs> the Laying out of hands. So it's the exact same physical sign as confirmation, but it's for a different purpose. Right. Um, and so, A.J., what are the three orders? And give me their Greek name so that we can... Begin separating these. What are the three orders of the church that we see?
1: Right, so the three orders, when we talk about three orders, uh, these are people who are, uh, um, you know, in a sense, you can start to see how some of these sacraments are building off of each other. Uh, and a lot of people who are small c Catholics will talk about the idea of a sacramental system. Um, and so, ordination is a a more special form of grace for people who are doing ministry uh, in the church who are set apart for specific works of ministry, uh, specific orders and types of ministry. It doesn't make you a super Christian. It just means that you've got a special job. uh, And so you need special grace for the special job that you have to do. and there are, you know, it does. It is a more a very difficult job in, in a sense, and you need special grace because the challenges are very of those jobs are very real. Those, those uh, ministries, those callings. I think job is a, a colloquial way of saying it, but I would say really it's it's also it's a calling. If you're not called to one of these, uh, you're probably not going to end up there, um, and and it's not going to be successful. So the three orders are deacon, priest, and bishop. Or in the Greek, I'm going to try not to butcher the pronunciation here: diaconos, presbyteros, and episkopos. Um, diakonos i I think the greek translates as as servant uh do you remember the presbyteros means in greek elder elder right uh and episkopos is overseer yeah so if you're
0: reading if you're reading your english bible today this is where it begins to break down uh if you're reading your english bible you're going to see overseers elders apostles and deacons Ironically, we decided to not translate the word deacon into servant, which is what it truly means. So you truly should have uh, apostles or really messengers, messengers, overseers, um, elders and servants. Um, But once again, that's apostles, overseers, elders and deacons in your new in your English translation of the Bible. Um, And all those words become transliterated. So apostle remains apostle. Episcopos becomes episcopal which Episcos becomes bishop um, presbyteros or elder becomes presbyter uh, you might have heard of the presbyterians they believe in having an elder system that's where that word comes from uh, becomes priest which becomes priest um, and then diaconos easily becomes deacon And so you can see where we have elders bishops priests and deacons or sorry apostles bishops priests and deacons in the new testament um so when we think about these three all right when we think about these orders and you read the new testament you're going to see three distinct categories of orders based on their roles right so the first that we see is apostles you know that you know Christ breathes on the apostles and he says receive the holy spirit for this ministry you're about to undertake we consider that the ordination of the apostles and they go out and they are the messengers they are sent by god and they they hold a very unique role to teach and to safeguard the gospel to such an extent that they become pretty bogged down you know they have 3000 converts at one time they've got only 12 of them and they say hold on we are not only teaching and safeguarding the gospel but we're also doing all the managerial serving tasks that we just don't have time to do so what do they do they create a second order of ministry the servants the deacons to do surely merely that not merely to do specifically that to serve the needs of the church and as we have examples to preach the gospel boldly to the world Um, in a modern sense we see deacons as the ministers to the world they are the face of the church to bring both the church to the world and bring the needs of the world to the church Um, we also I I think we've talked about we want to do a specific um, episode on deacons specifically but deacons are horribly misunderstood right now and the most important thing I want to say is that in the beginning of the church you have apostles and the first order that needs to be created is deacons. They're an apostolic ministry. They're a crucial ministry and we cannot undervalue them. They're they, not they're not simply inferior copies of priests. Absolutely. They they are specifically assistants not to elders but to the apostles. They hold an apostolic role that's linked then to the ministry of overseeing of the entire church. So that moves on. So we have apostles, we have deacons. The last role initially are elders. So elders truly are the, you know, you could say, you know, it's, I mean, the leaders of the church in a local area, the leaders of congregations. And when you have leaders of churches and areas, there's always appointed, you can see this clearly in Timothy and Titus, one, elder over the rest who oversees them as an episkopos the overseer yeah and so in the time of the apostles you have the apostles who oversee the entire church you have elders and their overseers leading small local congregations celebrating the sacraments and you have deacons who are assisting the apostles in their ministry as the apostles apostolic age passes away we see overseers succeeding the apostles in their role so stepping they still maintain the identity as an as an elder as a presbyter as a priest but they step into the role not they don't become apostles but they step into the role of safeguarding the faith that is the apostolic ministry and they carry on the continuity of the apostolic ministry so initially you have apostles, you have overseers and elders, and you have deacons—a threefold role. And now, in today's times, and as early as the 100s AD, you have the threefold order of bishops, priests,
1: and deacons. And by the way, in some congregations, that, you know, there's an argument that's made that in some congregations there's not a distinction uh, early on, especially if the congregation is really small, between elder and overseer. And I would say that's true, but where that's true, you actually see them referred to as overseers, not as elders. So if you look at the Didache, which is a very early Christian document, possibly as early as maybe a little bit before 100 AD, uh, they're talking about bishops and deacons. They don't have elders because the I think it's a, it's a small church and they haven't had the need to consecrate elders yet. Uh, they haven't had the need to consecrate pres- presbyters, um, to use that more, I think, in, in, in some sense um
0: Eclesi-
1: ecumenical ecclesiological ecumenical term. term right so um, if anything you know I would say bishops and deacons we know are consistently in all of the churches um, presbyters as distinct from the bishop are not actually attested in all of the ancient sources um, they by the time you get to I would say like 130 150 somewhere in that range there you you see a very clear threefold order Um, But there's a common argument that the bishop sort of emerges later and that really it's just priests. No, you know, or or just pastors or presbyters. I would actually say that if you're going to make that argument, it's probably the the separate office of presbyter that emerges later rather than the Episcopal office. All right.
0: I think that covers ordination at least— yeah, we definitely need to have a yeah. you know, separate episode. On
1: I would that. say real quick, the grace that is conveyed is mm-hmm. that, uh, that ability to fulfill these incredibly difficult, uh, challenging offices in the church. Uh, and that there is a special grace that's really required to safeguard that apostolic teaching. You need a, a special wisdom and discernment about the truth of the gospel. A bishop has to be really, really well versed in theology uh, and really aware of the gospel truth and to be able to safeguard that. Um, you know, the priest is in in some sense um you know i would say has a, a special work a special priestly ministry to the church uh, and the deacon that has an even in some ways um you're serving in the church but you're also serving to the world right and and um there is a special grace i would say that <clears throat> that is required um and that is conveyed through the sacramental of ordination aj what is the physical sign of marriage Ha. Jay's trying to trick me up on this one. So the physical sign of marriage in a sacramental sense is the consummation of the marriage uh, in the the sexual act that makes a marriage consummated and complete. And the church has held that from uh, the very earliest days of the church. Uh, In fact, I would say it goes back further than that. I would say that it kind of goes back to Genesis 1, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, uh, where it talks about the, the two shall become one flesh, right? That's not just a metaphor. There's a physical aspect of that. Um, and so the, the sexual act, the sex within marriage is the physical sacramental consummation of marriage. By the way, this is also the purpose of sex.
0: Absolutely. The purpose and the sign is that we get to the grace which as we see clearly in scripture is that the two become one flesh if you want to talk about a mystery or a sacrament marriage is truly the mystery that any married person can tell you they have no concept how it works or what happens but through it yeah you have the grace of one flesh that brings forth new life
1: And by the way, uh, very conveniently in scripture, Paul actually says in Ephesians 5, this, when he's talking about marriage, is is a mystery. And I'm telling you, it pertains to Christ and the church. I.e., if you're reading in Latin, this is a sacrament. A sacrament.
0: All right, AJ, what is the physical sign in the anointing
1: of the sick? Uh, Anointing with oil is the physical sign. And where do we get that from? Uh, you know there's I would I, I'm I'm cheating. I have Okay it yeah, he's got right in front, it front of me. Right AJ, front of me. But, I But, I, I'm but so so there. I think that in terms of um, you know anointing there is a long Old Testament tradition of um, anointing um, I think it so if I remember correctly, we, it goes like all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus. There are um, there are priests that are anointed. There are uh, sick people that are anointed, and it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about at the beginning, right? There's these uh, examples of healing where there's always something physical that is associated with it. Um, and anointing with oil also in the Old Testament is a sign of health um, and of, of prosperity. Uh, in Psalm 23, it says, "You anoint, you God, anoint my head with oil." Um, And my cup overflows. So there's a a strong precedent of being anointed with oil as being tied to sort of prosperity, health, uh, and wellness. And so you can see how that connects in as well.
0: And in the New Testament, we have the specific command to do this from the Epistle of James. James, This is chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. What do we say elders were, AJ? Presbyters. Presbyters, <laughs> or in our common parlance, priests, yeah. priests. So let him call the priests of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the
1: sick person well. And what is this wellness that they will be brought to? I would say it's um, most commonly associated with physical, but really the, the healing of the sick um, is... Uh, an immortal uh, and a, and a uh, transformative grace. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's the assurance
0: of eternal life. You know, right. Sickness sickness in the time of the apostles is very often deadly. You know, we have, I, I think it's hard to read these passages in our modern context and forget that a cold in these time periods, you could die from it. I mean, now I have a cold and I'm like, well, this is obnoxious. I'm going to take some cough medicine. But these are totally different contexts of being sick. You know, sick being sickness is deadly, and sickness is truly the curse of the fall. And so what is the prayer of faith that makes them well? But the anointing of
1: oil is the assurance of eternal life. And by the way, there's a very long tradition in Christianity of believing that the Eucharist also has healing power. It's, it's often described as the medicine of immortality. Um, and some of this does get abused, I would say, later on, and that's part of what the 39 articles are re- reacting against. Um, but there really is a sense in which um, the, the sacraments of salvation also have some um, healing power in a spiritual sense and, and possibly also in a physical sense. I would say that from, from my perspective, I'm not going to deny the possibility that this sacrament of anointing with oil will actually have physical healing powers because we see a v- both in Scripture and in church traditions, a very long, robust uh, tradition of miraculous healing coming through this. But I'm also going to say that if you don't receive that physical healing, that doesn't mean that healing hasn't taken place um, because there is that inward spiritual grace that is conveyed. It is really, truly, we know it is conveyed. Um, and so that even those who die will truly live. Uh, because of what we affirmed in the last episode, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. All right. And the last
0: sacrament, number seven, AJ, what is the physical sign in absolution?
1: Yeah, this is a very interesting question uh, that actually in our extensive show prep, Jay and I were talking about. Um, I'd say there are a couple of different answers, but they all sort of revolve around uh, the, the Position that the priest plays. So, so uh, sometimes it's associated with the declaration, the verbal declaration. Uh, sometimes it's, it's also um, been associated with the stole. Uh, that there's the sort of um, under the seal of the confessional, uh, as it's talked about in in Roman Catholicism, or the idea of the the sign of the stole. Uh, but in some sense, the priest is um, standing as the, the physical sign. Um, and again, we see parallels of this in the Old Testament, right? So uh, the priest is making an offering in the the temple in the holy of holies and then proclaiming uh absolution to the people and, and coming out and doing that so there's some continuity there in terms of uh, that person being the physical sign
0: absolutely and the biblical basis for you know the a physical person declaring to you the forgiveness of your sins comes from john 20 uh starting at um verse 21 So we talked about already the ordination of the apostles. This is where this comes to. Jesus says to the apostles, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not, they will not be. So clearly, Christ is giving the authority to these men to proclaim forgiveness of sins. This doesn't mean that they are forgiving the sins. God alone is forgiving the sins, but they are the conduit, the physical manifestation of God's declaration of forgiveness to those who repent. So when we look at you know, And that's where I think it's important to understand that it's not just me and AJ, who are both laymen, having a conversation, and me confessing my sins to AJ, which scripture does command me to do, and AJ saying, AJ cannot turn to me and say, Jay, I forgive you as Christ. He can say, if I sin against AJ specifically, he can forgive me. But if I'm just confessing a sin, AJ can't forgive me as Christ because he does not have the authority to do so. The sacrament of absolution is the sacrament of that ministerial authority that has been given to the apostles and passed down from the apostles to the elders of the church to pronounce God's forgiveness as Christ. Yeah, um, I always, you know, one of those... You know, you have those memories that just will never go away. And the confession and absolution um, on Sunday mornings growing up always stood out to me. My dad was uh, the pastor of my church. And he would start with, uh, from First John, If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins. And then we say the confession. And afterwards, my dad would stand up and say, As a called and ordained minister... I now declare, to, declare you. to you that your sins are forgiven. Okay. You know, this just, it washes over you, and it reminds you sacramentally that God himself is speaking to you
1: through that person to bestow his grace and his forgiveness on you. Right. I think this is kind of a, a comment that really applies to this one because absolution and confession is, is a tough one for Protestants because of this whole idea of the priestess as mediator. I think it's important for us. We have to remember we are physical beings. We need to hear and taste and smell and touch something to know that it's really real. Um, in a sense, you know, uh, Thomas Thomas has something when he says, "I have to physically experience this." And um, and Christ says, "How blessed are those who have not seen and and yet believe." And yet, still, He provides for us this physical means of receiving and of of having the assurance. And there's something powerful in having the proclamation of the forgiveness of your sins. Um, And not just knowing it sort of in in the heart, but actually hearing it. Our bodies, our minds need to be constantly reminded of this forgiveness, lest we are tempted to carry our sins around. Um, And, you know, in in the quiet of our hearts, uh, Our sinful nature and the devil will constantly urge us to believe that our sins are unforgivable and cannot be forgiven. And against that, having this public proclamation, um, an authoritative proclamation of what God has done for us is a powerful rebuke to that tendency um, of hell, of the devil, and of our own sinful natures to say that sins can never be let go of. Right? And so that speaks to the grace that is received. It's, it's an assurance, but it also empowers us by hearing this, physically hearing this proclamation, to let go of our sins, give them to the cross, and then come, as we do in the liturgy afterward, uh, come to the altar, kneel at the table of the Lord, and receive the grace that he has given us. Hey AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Guide and direct
0: us, O Lord always and everywhere with your holy light that we may discern with clear vision your presence amongst us and partake with worthy intention of your divine mysteries. We ask this for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.